There's plenty to celebrate in March and craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 infinity qx80 live march 20th from the edge at hudson yards in new york city Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Amy Winehouse died at the age of 27, and she lived a life unlike any other. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Two would be the runtime in minutes of a leaked video with footage so damning it led to a stint in the very place Amy swore she would never go. Five more would be the number of Grammy Awards she won while her beloved Holly Arms pub in Northwest London's Camden Town burned. Another seven would be the number of hours she spent out on the town in April 2008, a night made infamous by the violent attack she committed on two unsuspecting men. Ten more would be the number in millions of pounds that she was estimated to be worth in 2008 when she made Britain's rich list for the first time. And three would be the number of years she had left to live when her own father called for her to be committed to a mental institution, all totaling 27. On this, our premiere episode of season four, leaked videos, London's burning, violent attacks, and Amy Winehouse. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
Amy Winehouse was in rehab, the very place she swore she'd never go, the place she sang about in that song, the song, the song that put her on the map, leveled her up. She was that song and that song was her. It defined who she was on stage, on record, in the press, behind closed doors. There was no artistic license involved in that one. It was a raw declaration of a personal constitution. And that declaration was this. She was defiant. She was brazen. She was funny as fuck. Did she suffer fools? Did she take orders from anyone? Did she want to go to rehab? No, no, and no. But look at her now. Fucking rehab. Even though she'd been forced to go, she felt like she had betrayed her own image and therefore betrayed the people who helped that song go to number seven in the UK and number nine in the US. What a hypocrite. But as she looked around the walls of Capio Nightingale, a private drug addiction clinic on Harley Street in London, a hypocrite wasn't the only thing she was feeling like. She felt like a member of the undead. The taste of the water was bland and the smell of the air was odorless. Blues were no longer blue, at least not as blue as the blue she thought she'd known. Reds were washed out into a dull pink. She missed the stomach-churning feeling of being in love and out of love and back in love again. She wasn't happy, but she wasn't sad. If she was at her lowest, she couldn't even feel it. This must be what being undead feels like. She feared she would never feel a thrill again. The thrill of a high. The highs that Amy Winehouse was used to feeling were real high. Unfortunately, those real highs were what landed her in this zombie prison in the first place. It was January 2008. What a way to spend the new year. The Sun, that London rag, Amy blamed them. They hosted a video on their website just days before. The one that by now had bounced from one corner of the internet to another around the world in a click. The thing had gone viral, it was viewed by millions. The Sun claimed that the clip had been edited down from 19 minutes to two minutes, but two minutes was plenty of time to do serious damage. In the clip, Amy walks around her London home in a dark tank top. She admits to taking six volume. She goes to her bedroom where she lights a glass pipe and takes a hit, and then another. And the son said it was crack cocaine. A few hits in the privacy of her own home. What was the big deal? If only they knew. The lengths to which she would go to chase that feeling. The depths to which she would go to forget that she was famous. The public said that whoever had sent the video to the son was doing Amy a favor. Her own mother even told the Daily Mail how happy she was that her daughter was getting help. Her parents told the press everything. Some days Amy felt like she was the press. She was all that London and the UK talked about. America was starting to talk too, considering that she had been now nominated for six Grammy Awards, Record of the Year and Song of the Year for Rehab, Album of the Year for Back to Black, Best New Artist, Best Female Vocal Pop Performance and Best Vocal Album. The only other artist with more nominations was Kanye West. And Amy Winehouse was only 24 years old, but she had the voice of someone well beyond her years. Someone wiser. How could a voice like that come from someone like her? A skinny Jewish girl from North London, just five foot three, 
six foot three if you included the beehive hairdo that balanced precariously above her dramatic eyeshadow and lashes. She sounded like she was out of time, like her voice had come straight out of the past to inhabit a very contradictory 21st century musical landscape. A voice snatched from years ago, decades even, a completely different period in time. She was a Sarah Vaughan in a sea of Katy Perry's. I was wanting to believe it, old souls, but it wasn't that exactly. The voice was the old soul. The voice was the thing. And whether or not Amy Winehouse wanted to believe it, that voice was in serious trouble, as was Amy. Her drug use had gotten completely out of control. It wasn't just crack, it was coke, it was heroin, it was whatever the hell she could get her hands on. And whatever she got her hands on, she couldn't get enough of. Lucian Grange, head of Universal UK, the media company that owned Amy's record label, Island Records, knew that Amy's addiction had to be conquered. It wasn't just her career on the line, it was her life, which is why Amy's trip to rehab also coincided with a contract from Lucian Grange for her to sign. The contract stated that Amy would not be able to perform at the Grammy Awards unless she was clean, 100% drug-free. She'd even have to pass a piss test. And much to the surprise and elation of people like Lucian Grange and her mother and her fans, Amy did it. She did her time in rehab and got herself clean and prepared to appear at the 2008 Grammy Awards on Sunday, February 10th. But her well-known and heavily reported upon reputation preceded her. Her application for a visa was rejected by the United States, so she made her appearance via satellite, where she performed live in front of an audience. And she didn't look like the strung-out junkie taking hits from a crack pipe on The Sun's website. She looked good. She sounded even better. She kept pace with her 10-piece band. Her voice hit all the lows and all the highs, and when the night was over, she had taken home five of the six awards that she was nominated for. But Amy still felt like a bit of a hypocrite, singing her battle cry hit single about the one place she wouldn't go after she'd just, well, gone there. And she couldn't shake the feeling that had taken her over while she was in rehab, that she was blander than she'd been before, that the world was blander and the snare drum didn't snap the way she remembered. The horns didn't send shivers down her spine. It was supposed to be an evening of renewal, of second chances, of the beautiful, positive things that a person could manifest if they only put their mind to it. Amy's friends thought so. One of them said to her, I can't believe this is happening. I'm so proud of you. Amy looked back at her friend through eyes that felt like undead shells of their former selves. She responded with the only thing that was presently on her mind. This is so boring without drugs. You could get a clear view of the fire from the bridge over Regent's Canal. Flames shot 30 feet into the air. Smoke filled the nighttime sky. London's fire brigade battled the blaze, shooting water from their aerial ladders. From a distance, it looked like a losing game. Camden Town was burning. And history was burning with it. 
Camden Town in London was where The Clash played for the first time back in 1976. In fact, the iconic photo of the band on the cover of their self-titled debut was taken in the alleyway just outside their Camden Town rehearsal studio. Camden Town was also the location of the Electric Ballroom, the venue where Sid Vicious gave his final UK performance, fronting a band called Vicious White Kids. It's where a struggling new wave ska band called Madness began to attract a following in a pub called the Dublin Castle. According to legend, Camden Town was also the spot where the famous rivalry between Oasis and Blur began at a small two-roomed Irish bar called The Good Mixer. If you believe the legend, Noel Gallagher took one look at Graham Coxon and said, nice music, shit clothes. It was all downhill from there, obviously, or uphill depending on your point of view. And in 2008, Camden remained a hotspot in London's cultural geography, even if its punk and bohemian roots had, in recent years, been eclipsed by strange corporate bedfellows and big money. There was such a thing as too hot, and on this particular day, as the evening of February 9th quickly became the early morning of February 10th, London's hip mecca neighborhood was just that, literally so hot it was on fire. And the fire that tore through Camden Market threatened to reduce vintage clothing stores, record shops, and pubs to ashes. Thousands were evacuated from their homes, flats, and bars. People ran down the streets, screaming to the sounds of gas canisters exploding from the heat. Entire buildings collapsed. And for several hours, the Holly Arms was engulfed in flames. The Holly Arms on Castlehaven Road was London's unofficial rock and roll hangout. And not just for usual suspects like Liam Gallagher and Kate Moss and the Libertines Pete Doherty. The Holly Arms was the watering hole of choice for members of the Arctic Monkeys and the Kaiser Chiefs. Johnny Burrell of Razorlight brought his girlfriend Kirsten Dunst there. And Tim Burgess of the Charlatans once told a story about walking into the pub one day only to be greeted by bartender du jour, Amy Winehouse, pouring pints behind the bar for anyone who bellied up. When she wasn't pouring the pints, she was calling for another round for herself, like one of her favorites made on the spot, a rixtasy, three parts vodka, one part banana liqueur, one part Southern Comfort, and one part Bailey's. And the pub soundtrack was just as good as its tap list. The Angels, the Shirelles, the Dixie Cups, the Shangri-Las, the Ronettes. If you were searching for inspiration in a glass or an old 45, the Holly Arms was the place to be. All it took was a coin and a jukebox selection and you'd step back in time. And no one knew that better than Amy Winehouse. Holly Arms wasn't just her local, it was a home away from home even if home was just a drunken stumble around the corner to Prow's place. And it didn't matter that it was the year 2008, and Amy Winehouse was now the Amy Winehouse, a fixture in the tabloids, her troubles with drugs and her tumultuous marriage to Blakefield or Civil, just as much a part of the discussion as her music. Her sophomore album, Back to Black, had been released over a year prior, and it was still a mainstay on both the US and the UK charts. Honestly though, if she could trade it all, she would. If she could just hang at the Holly Arms every night, sing on a little stage in the corner of a Camden Town pub when she felt like it, listen to Ronnie Spector and Sarah Vaughn all night, then she'd be happy. And the Grammy goes to Amy Winehouse. Mm -hmm. 
there she was, on another stage, at Riverside Studios in the Hammersmith District of West London, in front of a dinner theater audience accepting her Grammy Awards via satellite. Had she just seen and heard what she thought she'd just seen and heard? Tony Bennett, Tony fucking Bennett said her name, live, from Hollywood. She couldn't believe it. Her jaw was still on the floor. She was struck dumb. She couldn't believe that Tony Bennett actually knew who she was. And she also couldn't believe that she had somehow stumbled into this, achieved this, fame, ubiquitous fame. She first gained fame for her voice, which was both evocative of a bygone era and uniquely futuristic, but now her talent was secondary to the fame. No amount of gold trophies was gonna change that. She just had to walk down Camden High Street in a tank top and cut off shorts, and it was news. The real news that day, the thing everyone should be talking about in her opinion, was not the Grammy Awards. It was the fact that Camden Market was on fire. The real news was the cosmic fuckery that had set flames to the very place she enjoyed getting her rocks off and acting like a normal person on the regular. Right as she came off her first stint to rehab and on the same day that she won an armful of Grammys. It was like the universe was shutting a door behind her, like she couldn't go back. She had to commit to being this new person. It was bullshit. So she fought back. She fought back against the cosmic fuckery, the universe, anyone who dared tell her what she could and couldn't do. Camden Town ain't burning down, she said defiantly into the microphone. Her mother at her side as both the live audience and the satellite audiences cheered on. The Grammy audience in Hollywood had no idea that Camden Market was currently engulfed in flames, nor did they know that Amy's old haunt, Holly Arms, wouldn't make it through the night. And there was a lot that the public didn't know about Amy Winehouse. Even though they were fed a steady diet of her life through the daily news and therefore thought they knew her quite well. Just days later, at the 2008 Brit Awards on February 14th, Amy took the stage alongside Mark Ronson, the New York via London DJ and producer whose collaboration with Amy on Back to Black put them both on the map. Amy, dressed in a tartan corset and leopard print miniskirt with her long black hair piled high, looked like one of the pinup girls tattooed on her arms. Bronson, in a sharp blue suit, played a double-neck Gibson as Amy sang Valerie, the Zuton song that the duo had covered on Ronson's 2007 LP version. The live audience and the TV audience all thought they knew what they were watching. A victory lap for Amy's post-rehab comeback that had begun days earlier with her triumphant Grammys performance. And sure, Amy was a little wobbly on stage. Ronson wielded the double neck like a protective barrier should Amy stumble and pitch forward, but that was the character, right? That was Amy Winehouse, the singer, even if it was no longer Amy Winehouse, the person. What audiences couldn't see, however, was what was happening backstage at the Brit Awards. During final rehearsals, Amy was falling over. She'd knocked back a few stiff drinks. She was out of her head. Show producers contemplated cutting her from the show entirely, a staffer poked his head in Paul McCartney's dressing room and asked if the ex-Beatle could extend the medley he had planned to perform in the event that Amy had to sit this one out. It didn't take long for word of an unreformed and unrepentant Amy Winehouse to make it to the papers. It never took long. They couldn't wait to give their readers a glimpse into the seedy underbelly of everyone's favorite down-and-out pop star, the one they all dubbed Wino in ink. 
It was the mirror that had the scoop on this particular story, fed directly from an anonymous source who claimed they had witnessed it all behind the scenes at the Brit Awards. The scoop laid bare that there weren't two Amy Winehouses. The public Amy and the private Amy were one and the same. And she'd unintentionally fooled the public with this whole rehab nonsense. Because the truth was that she wasn't getting better. The truth was that she was about to find herself in very grave danger. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. Five to six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner. The rise, the fall and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. The hand came fast and hard. So fast that Mustafa El-Mumai couldn't tell if it was a palm or a fist, a slap or a punch. One thing was for certain, it was a sucker shot all the way. Mustafa reeled back. He dropped his pool cue to the floor. His eye throbbed with pain and his lip burned. He could already feel the swelling start. The collective air went out of the room. The good mixer, like many pubs in Camden Town, Saw a lot of shit go down on a nightly basis, but this was next level. It wasn't that Mustafa had been hit. It was who had hit him. He held the eye that had been struck and looked out through his good eye. 
Amy Winehouse wobbled in place in front of him where they stood next to a pool table. Her giant black bouffant looked like it was about to capsize. She wore a black fishnet shirt that revealed a cherry print bra, denim capri pants. She looked about as bad as Mustafa felt, which was saying something, seeing as though she wasn't the one who had just been clocked in the face. The minutes earlier, she had stumbled into the good mixer like she owned the place. Was it the fact that she was a worldwide celebrity that made her act that way, or was that simply the person she was? Sometimes it was hard to tell. Hell, she probably didn't even know. It could have also been whatever the hell she was on that night, which was definitely something. Mustafa and the other patrons at the pub knew it the moment she strode through the door, wearing that walk of shame look that she couldn't help but wear when she was wasted. Amy's eyes rolled around in her head. She slurred her Cockney-adjacent North London accent. And she could have been on anything. It wouldn't surprise a soul in there. Weed, coke, heroin, crack, she didn't discriminate. She made one thing clear. She wanted to play pool. And she wasn't going to wait for next. She was playing now. But Mustafa and his pals were in the middle of a game, and she'd just have to wait. Boy, fuck she would. And that's when her hand leapt up and caught Mustafa in the face. The pint glass shattered on the floor. Someone pulled Amy back as she screamed out loud that she was going to fucking play fucking pool right fucking now, and there was nothing any fucking one was going to fucking do about it. Mustafa felt the blood rushing from his face, his nose, his eye, his cheek. He didn't know where, but Jesus Christ, it stung like a mother. He stood his ground while Amy was hauled from the pool table to the front door. And later he would say, I feel so angry. She smashed my face hard, but I could not hit back. She's a woman. Outside, the paparazzi bulbs flashed. They were all there. The vultures, the Daily Mail, the Daily Mirror, the Sun, Evening Standard, News of the World. Freelance photogs just taking photos just to take photos, just because someone would buy them. Just look at her, stumbling around from one side of the street to the other, a cigarette just dangling from her lips, her eyes bobbing open and closed. It looked like she didn't even know where she was or who she was. And the photogs circled her like lions around a gazelle. They remembered to save enough film on the chance that she was going to go down right there on the pavement, lights out, DOA in Camden Town. Now those pictures would sell. But she didn't go down. The paparazzi had to settle for photos of her holding a giant spliff in her hand while she bathed in the yellow and green lights of London's after-hours nightlife. Holding hands with some bloke who played in Pete Doherty's non-libertines band, Baby Shambles. The day hadn't been any more productive than the night for Amy Winehouse. She was working on a theme song for the new James Bond movie, Quantum of Solace, the second to feature Daniel Craig as 007. Back in the producer's chair was Mark Ronson, the transatlantic music man who had been her main man on Back to Black. She was hoping to parlay that girl group garage sound into cinematic gold, something dramatic, heartbreaking, worldly, and with a killer backbeat. But the song wasn't coming together. What the fuck was a quantum anyway? And how could you write a song about it? The Bond theme was indicative of a larger problem. Back to Black had been out for a year and a half. It had been a wild year and a half. In addition to winning Grammys and critical accolades, Back to Black had recently been certified double platinum. It was still on the charts. But Amy couldn't wrap her head around what she was going to do next. The enemy had the inside dirt, allegedly, that reported that her new album would be, quote, very dark, with many songs, quote, themed around the subject of death. And they were all wrong. What did the enemy know about it anyway? 
They all said that Back to Black had been a dark record too, one inspired by on-again, off-again drama with her husband, Blake Fielder Civil. Did they even listen to it? That record wasn't dark, it was funny, it was snarky, it was smart pop music, the kind they used to make but didn't make anymore. It was Amy Winehouse is what it was. And now, Amy Winehouse didn't even know who she was supposed to be. She may or may not have known where she was on the map on that evening in April of 2008 when she walked away from Clocky Mustafa El Mumai and the Kisser and shambled on over to Bar Talk, another Camden pub near her home. It was two in the morning. She thought about the problems she was having in the studio and with writing the new record. She thought about the paparazzi waiting for her outside. They'd be all over her as soon as she stepped through that front door. She was frustrated, fucked up. She threw her glass onto the floor and then another. Her head snapped back and forth like a rag doll. She grabbed onto a table and flipped it over. People sipping Stella's and black and tans jumped to avoid half-empty pints spilling onto their going out clothes. Amy screamed at no one in particular. I am a legend, she pointed aimlessly around the room. Get these people out. But soon, Amy herself was back on the street. She was obviously intoxicated, high, unwell. Everyone could see it. The photogs were doing their best to capture it in all its ugly, pitiful glory. One even got a shot of Amy walking into a lamppost. A good Samaritan decided to help out and tried to hail Amy a cab. In her disoriented state, Amy mistook the kind offer for some sort of predatory advance. Like the guy was trying to grab a piece of her body because she was vulnerable and famous and he felt entitled. Before the cab could even pull up to the sidewalk, Amy had refused the offer. And not just with a polite, no thank you. She put her face to the strangers, dramatically leaned back, and then headbutted him with a force not unlike the one she had employed to hit that Mustafa dude in the good mixer just a few hours earlier. The paparazzi was still there, around 4 a.m., when she had a break into her own home. And they were behind her to either side. Camera snapped and flashed. Amy found the door to 25 Prowse Place locked. She dug around in the pockets of her jeans for her keys. Nothing. Fuck. So she had a few friends help her pry open the garage door from the bottom. And they painstakingly lifted the door out from the pavement, where one of them had squeezed his way inside to then go and unlock the door. And the cameras continued to click and flash even as Amy Winehouse made her way inside her home. The door closed behind her and the photogs stood at attention. They waited, because they knew this wasn't the end. It wasn't a question of if there would be more. It was a question of when. On April 27, 2008, the Sunday Times published the annual Britain's Rich List, the so-called, quote, definitive guide to the wealth of the UK's richest people, unquote. The list offered up the lofty bottom lines of sirs, dukes, and captains of UK industry. And despite the turbulent year Amy Winehouse had been having, not the least of which included the violent and unhinged night out in Camden Town from just four days earlier, Amy Winehouse found herself on the list for the first time, with her estimated worth at 10 million pounds. If the music charts and the album sales and the Grammy Awards hadn't made it clear yet, then this certainly did. 
Amy Winehouse was not just famous like tabloid fodder famous. She was successful, one of the most successful performers in the UK. She was a star. Not everyone was happy with that particular piece of news. Mitch Winehouse, Amy's father, the same guy who had once inspired some of the cheekiest lines in Amy's iconic hit song when he disregarded the advice of others and told his daughter that she in fact did not have to go to rehab, that Mitch Winehouse had changed his tune and was now calling for Amy to be committed to a mental institution. This particular piece of news was published the very same day as Britain's Rich List in a competing publication, News of the World. I want her sanctioned, Mitch told the paper, referring to the legal authority that trumped individual consent for admission to a hospital per the UK's Mental Health Act. Quote, the situation is getting out of control. I want her off the street. I don't think being somewhere for six weeks is going to cure her problems. I think she needs far more radical measures, unquote. Amy Winehouse continued to insist that she wasn't going to be told what to do, not even by her own father. What the hell happened that my daddy thinks I'm fine anyway? But there wasn't much one could do when Amy had made her mind up. Just ask Mustafa El Mumai. Her record company, however, agreed with Mitch that more radical measures were needed. Lucian Grange was not pleased that he had put expectations in place with the contract he had Amy sign prior to the Grammy Awards, only for Amy to leave said expectations in her dust as she continued to drink and drug her way to the front page of any tabloid that would have her. If they weren't going to go so far as to have her committed or sectioned, to use the UK parlance, they could at least exhibit their own kind of control. They could issue her an ultimatum. If she wanted this life, if she wanted to be able to sing, to make the music that she wanted to hear, the music that she thought was sorely lacking in the world, then she would have to agree to some very specific parameters. Because she obviously couldn't be trusted on her own, even if it meant locking her down in house arrest, stationing guards outside her doors, some muscle to shoo away the paparazzi, and to keep Amy inside away from the bad influences, the drug dealers and drug takers, away from the men she wanted to punch at pool tables and headbutt on street corners, 24-7 surveillance. It would be record label appointed rehab. She wouldn't go to a facility, she'd just sweat it out at home. But every person sworn to make her better, from Mitch Winehouse to the suits at Island Records in Universal UK, were seriously overestimating Amy's desire to remain famous. She hadn't asked for this, she didn't know how to handle it. The attention, the paparazzi, the stories in the papers. Fuck, did anyone know how to handle this shit? She'd even said it back in 2003, back when she was on a promotional tour for her debut album, Frank. Not only did she think she'd never become capital F famous, she didn't think she'd be able to handle it if she did. She even said that she would go mad. What did any of them think would happen? Why were they surprised? She said what she said back in 2003, and now fame was here, so it begged the question, was she going mad? At times like this, Amy Winehouse just wanted to go back to 2003, back to before her face was plastered on every paper in the UK. This wasn't happiness. Happiness to her sounded like a round of pints at her local, a place where she could get on a tiny stage in the corner when the feeling suited her and sing a few tunes and a few people would be watching her, not the entire world. She just wanted to turn back time, just like her music turned back time. And that is, if she didn't run out of time first. I'm Jake Brennan, and this 
is the 27 Club. The 27 Club is hosted and produced by me, Jake Brennan, for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. This episode was mixed by Matt Bowden. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Talk to me on social at Disgraceland Pod and hang out with me live on my Twitch channel, Disgraceland Talks. For more news on your favorite podcast, follow at Double Elvis on Instagram. Rockarola. What's up for your ears? Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast.